You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Nine out of ten doctors agree. We'll be right back. No one can escape the long arm of the law on Genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode 6, Police Brutality. Welcome to Mission Law Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. This is a Roddenberry podcast where, week after week, we're digging through the archives, looking at Gene's earliest TV writing work in the decade before he began dreaming for his vision of the final frontier. Genealogy doesn't cover any one show, but follows the path of one writer through a challenging industry. We're telling the story of Gene telling his stories. And we do what we always do in the Mission Log family of podcasts. Look for signs of Gene's talent for slipping the audience a message wrapped up in an exciting story. This week we're about to close the door on the DA's office for good, covering Gene's final script contribution to the syndicated 1950s police and legal drama, Mr. District Attorney. Earl will be back with an evidence bag full of trivia in a moment, but first, here's how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now... After sifting through that big bag of evidence, here's Earl with this week's trivia. Thank you, Norm. As much as we try not to date stamp our podcasts, the end of Gene's time on Mr. District Attorney may be an opportune time to remind everyone that part of the reason Genealogy is appearing in the Mission Log podcast feed right now is not just because it's now part of the family, which it is, but because the Screen Actors Guild is still on strike and in solidarity with our fellow creative professionals and in accordance with SAG's podcast guidance issued early in the strike, Mission Log is in a holding pattern right now, but will return. And then you'll be getting both Mission Log and Genealogy in the same week. The Writers Guild of America has returned to work, having ratified their new three-year minimum basic agreement contract, so the writers are back at their word processors as we speak. Hopefully the actors who bring their words to life are able to score a similarly equitable deal. And at the time of this recording, it's looking like it may still be a while. But that brings us to an interesting point of trivia. When did Gene Roddenberry join the WGA? The paperwork we have in the archives shows that Gene became a member of that union on March 1st, 1954. In other words, in between his first script sale and the production and broadcast of Defense Plant Gambling. By the time Police Brutality aired, Gene, still writing everything under the pen name Robert Wesley because he was still moonlighting after putting in full days at the LAPD, had been a member in good standing of the WGA for over a year. But what does that work out to in cold, hard numbers? Another thing that recently turned up in the archives is a rate sheet from Ziv Television Programs addressed to Gene formalizing a writing assignment that Gene took on in 1956 for one of Ziv's half-hour shows. It reads as follows. Total compensation agreed upon, $700 is payable as follows. 
$100 paid 48 hours after delivery of the story outline, $250 paid seven days after delivery of the first draft, $200 paid seven days after delivery of the final screenplay, $150 paid seven days after delivery of additional revisions. So breaking that down, that's 700 bucks for a half-hour television script with whatever revisions are requested or required, as many of them as they asked for. I'm presuming that's story and teleplay pay there, by the way, and that would mean that the story is genes and the script is genes. Adjusting for inflation, that works out to $7,921.04 today. And for reference, that's well below what a television writer doing a half-hour story and teleplay, or even just the teleplay, just the script working from someone else's story outline, would make today. The reason writers can expect to do better than that today is because of the power of collective bargaining. For those of you wanting to know what these strikes have been about, that is what these strikes have been about. So... Hug your favorite TV writer today because they are scrapping for every bit of work they can get. And at the same time, they are campaigning for the next bit of work because seasons are pretty short these days. Bringing this back to Gene in the 50s, in a few weeks we'll start covering Gene's work on the Ziv TV series Highway Patrol. And toward the end of his five-episode run on that show is when he retired from the police department and became a full-time TV writer stopped being Robert Wesley and started taking his on-screen credit as Gene Roddenberry. Now that you know the numbers involved, then and now, and what a hit or miss industry it is, in hindsight, that is one hell of a brave decision for a new writer with a young family to support. I suppose you know that serious charges have been made against you. Haven't they found the truck? Look, Captain, I'm a policeman, remember? If I was gun-happy, there's plenty of guys I could have burned down. Dangerous suspects. You know I'm not a killer. We don't let that kind on the job. Richards, the lab man just ran a test on you. Sure, a paraffin test? So what? I was out cold. I didn't use my gun. The test proves you did. We checked every angle of your story. We worked hard on it, believe me. Richards, we can't back you up. I was out in a one-man car. It was a lonely road. I can't furnish witnesses for every move I made. All right, I'll answer that one. You say you were issuing a traffic citation. General orders require that you radio in when you leave your car. Communications received no such message. I was busy, or maybe I forgot. Does that make me a killer? When crime rears its head, District Attorney Paul Garrett is the man who organizes the law enforcement effort to stop it in its tracks and bring the criminals to justice. Act 1. Officer Tom Richards, a young policeman in his 30s, is in the midst of investigating and responding to several reports, of which are no real surprise to him. On his beat, he's used to checking in on his list of usual suspects. The noisy neighbor, whose loud music was reported by the nosy neighbor, who Tom has had run-ins with before to the point where his interactions with all of them has become routine. After diligently logging in his evening's reports to his dispatcher, he continues on his patrol and slows down in front of an old-style semaphore signal intersection, listening to the dispatcher alert all units to be on the lookout for 
a speeding truck, which barrels through the very same intersection where Thomas stopped. Screeching to a halt to avoid being slammed into by the truck, Tom flips on his sirens and takes off in hot pursuit. Inside the truck, two men, Betty Wade and Nat Clemens, pull over to the side of the road and are noticeably tense. Wade readies his gun just in case, but Clemens backs him down, ordering the both of them to play it cool. A cool and detached Richards approaches Wade and Clemens and routinely asks them for their driver's licenses. Richards cites them for speeding, but Wade insists that he just sped through a yellow light. After catching Wade in his lie, telling him there was no yellow light at the old semaphore signal intersection, Richards senses that the two men are suspiciously agitated and impatient. He begins to write them a ticket in his citation book and then quickly examines the truck. After investigating its contents, he orders Wade and Clemens to exit the vehicle slowly and carefully. After patting them down, Richards discards Wade's gun and begins to process them. Close by, two other men watch from a distance as their cohorts are being shaken down by a policeman. Deed and his henchman Artie decide to intervene and cautiously approach the lone officer, who seems to be in over his head. Richards, believing that they have arrived to help, asks Deed to use his police car radio to call for backup. Instead, Reed raises his walking cane and clubs Richard on the back of his head, knocking him to the ground, seemingly unconscious. However, before Wade and Clemens can dispose of him, Richard, in a stupor, guns down Wade before passing out. Reed orders his men to collect the officer's belongings, including tearing out the citation ticket from his notepad so that any evidence of this incident is accounted for. And before they disperse from the crime scene, Reed tells his henchmen that this is part of their war with the police, a war between them and the law, and that they have just been handed an opportunity. Reed uses Richard's police radio one last time to tell the dispatcher that he's witnessed a policeman commit murder. The next day, Captain Tony Delaney meets with District Attorney Paul Garrett to review Officer Richard's case. Both men are on edge because Reed's statement about witnessing an innocent man being gunned down by Officer Richards and the lack of physical evidence to support Richards' innocence are at odds, favoring Reed's testimony. Shortly after, they visit Richards, who is recuperating from his head wound in the hospital. However, the paraffin wax test and ballistics prove that the only gun fired on the scene was Richards. The young officer remembers meeting Garrett earlier in his career, reminding the district attorney that Richards is a stand-up type of man and not a cold-blooded killer with a badge. And even though Garrett's gut is telling him otherwise, the evidence cannot be disputed, especially one specific detail. Richards never called in stopping the truck, a clear violation of police general orders. After relieving Richards of duty, Garrett warns him that he will be as hard on him as he would be any defendant, that he can't show favoritism during his investigation to any member of law enforcement, but also reassures Richards that he's never convicted a man who he was convinced was innocent. Act 2. Later at the police station, Garrett and Delaney are inspecting what remains of Richards' equipment and personal effects from his locker. Delaney is disgusted with himself for what he has to do, to investigate one of their own to this degree. However, Garrett discovers something that may be of interest. The torn-out ticket carbon left behind from when Richards was writing his citation, which included a partial license plate impression left behind on the successive carbon slip. Garrett says that sometimes the carbon from another ticket can catch the writing from the previous one, and that the lab should be able to pull an impression if it's there. 
This literal shred of evidence gives Garrett enough reasonable doubt to order a police detail to follow Deed and the other suspects. Elsewhere in town, Deed, being the vainglorious personality that he is, is walking about and stops to admire his appearance in a storefront mirror, or at least seems to be, as he looks deeper past his reflection to confirm his suspicion that a plainclothes police tail is following him. After getting picked up by his driver, he's dropped off at a low-rent cafe where his illegal stash of gambling equipment is being worked on by Clemens. Turns out that before they open for legitimate business, their slot machines will be rigged to keep a healthy 40% for the house take. While Clemens continues his work, Deed ensures that his next tactical phase to destroy local police credibility is underway with a carefully scripted mimeograph flyer which reads, Citizen Committee Against Police Brutality. Deed's endgame is to discredit the police and turn public opinion against them with a weapon more powerful than guns or bullets, the weapon of the word. After Deed's flyers are circulated, Garrett and Delaney have their hands full with citizens calling in supporting Deed's accusations that the police are violent, corrupt, and take the law into their own hands while terrorizing innocent people. Even a once-quiet housewife claims that a motorcycle cop fired a shot through her car window, which was later discredited as a pebble that did the damage, not a bullet. But Garrett is canny enough to know that Deed's psychological warfare is spreading faster than they are able to contain. The only way to end this is to link Deed to the stolen gambling equipment and prove that Richards is innocent, that he killed Wade in self-defense. Just then, Garrett receives a call, and perhaps the final blow to their investigation. Their only lead, the carbon copy of Richard's citation book, was a failure. Out of time, and out of options, Richards now has to stand trial. After collecting Richards from the station, Garrett, Delaney, and the disgraced young officer are on their way to the courthouse when they receive a call. Garrett's plainclothes detail caught a break and were able to tail Reed to his hideout, Deed and Clemens are unaware and are inside, celebrating and planning to open their gambling parlor ahead of schedule. They are listening to the radio with reports of the public's discontent with law enforcement. But the radio report is cut short as Garrett snaps off the broadcast and strides into Deed's lair along with Delaney and Richards, who is allowed to confront Deed and Clemens and finishes charging them with the crime that nearly cost him his life in the line of duty. Reed and Clemens are then taken away and Richards is given back his badge. However, he isn't completely off the hook. Garrett is charging him with the crime of violating general orders with a penalty of one day's pay. And since Richards is working pro bono for a day, Garrett offers to celebrate their victory by taking Richards to lunch. Hopefully, a blue plate special. The end. Excellent job, Norm, bringing the evidence, bringing the police report. I have questions about Deed, and I think we both have the same questions, but you're saying that Deed is using words here, and therefore you have created, my friend, the Megaforce Paradox. Words, not deeds. I'm just yes. saying. I'm just saying. This is why Earl's a pro, because he brings it around full circle from the 1980s to the 1950s. Uh, before we get into Deed, because I know that we have a lot to say about him, one of the things I love looking at, Earl, is the opening script page, like the production assets, you know, the daily players, who's going to get credited for what, and obviously getting paid. Everyone is listed in there except for one person who actually gets listed later with a name and an actual series of dialogue, and that's Artie. So on scene 22, there is a descriptor close to shot of Deed and Artie. Artie is about 25, stupid, but obedient. 
And Deed even calls him by his name in the opening dialogue between the two of them. You see, Artie, the officer has a problem in military tactics, but looking at the production breakdown on page one, there's only a description of Deed's driver as part of the background ensemble cast. But Artie actually plays a larger role than that. So is this one of those things that you mentioned earlier in trivia where revisions needed to be made and then flesh out a character like Artie? But why? Because it's not really... He's not really a significant character to flush out. Could have just been a driver. I yeah, I have a feeling this is, you know, one of those however many dozens of revisions that you had to turn in to get your seven hundred bucks. But I have a feeling that he was probably yeah, like you said, an extra in the original formulation of the story, but it got to a point where we had to have some dialogue to clarify things with Deed. And so that's probably where he suddenly gains a name and some lines. And this is another speaking part we're having to hire for this week. So police brutality just got a little more expensive than it already is. So you're saying more words and not deed. Yeah, more words, but but deed was there. Okay. (laughs) Now, speaking of added expenses, we're doing night filming with a police car. I mean, Gene's running up a bill on this baby. I was fascinated by the mention of the semaphore flag-style traffic signals. Now, I have seen pictures of these. I knew they were a thing. It's not like, you know, it's not like uh, elevator strutters. You know, this is more in the wind-wing category than elevator strutters. But this made me want to look up when the change in this technology occurred. Because you see these... These flag-style traffic signals, I'm sure they're spring-loaded, they drop down, and then they raise up, and, you know, they're spring-loaded again. The first four-way traffic lights were invented in Detroit in 1920, and they were the invention of a policeman named William Potts. Now, Detroit was naturally the first place that they were used. Obviously, Officer Potts was trying to solve a problem that he saw... But that same year, Los Angeles was still installing the semaphore flag signals. The Detroit signals weren't even all electric. That didn't happen until 1923, when an African-American inventor named Garrett Morgan created the first all-electric traffic light and filed for the patent on that system. Now, in the 1950s, at the time this episode aired, computers were just beginning to enter the picture of managing traffic flow via control of the traffic lights from a, you know, a central automated authority. So it's entirely possible that in more rural, less developed parts of even big cities like L.A., where Mr. District Attorney was filmed, you would still find the semaphore signals. And again, having previously been a patrol officer, Gene would know which parts of town he would go to to still film those signs in action because the question of whether or not the intersection had traffic lights or the mechanical flags is something of a major plot point. It gets everything going. Yeah, I brought up that in my recap and then something else that I'll talk about later as a specific plot point. But I wanted to go back to you talking about night filming and the added expense of doing something like that. Did people get paid more to shoot at night or did they get paid the same rate? Was it just a matter of hauling out all that equipment like the police car, shooting by that semaphore signal, getting all the lighting in the crew established, blocking off the streets, things like that. Is that the kind of expenses you're talking about? Yeah, and there are permits. 
I've been doing some reading lately on Ziv's production methodology, and it revolved around, a, and anyone in Hollywood today is going to get a big belly laugh out of this, a six-hour shooting day. That is unheard of because, you know, 12 hours or more is the norm. And once you get mm. over a certain number of hours, whether you're asking people to come in earlier, you know, especially if they have unique makeup requirements like they did on the later shows related to Gene's future work, or you're asking them to stay later, that's called being forced. And you have to pay a lot extra to keep your cast around. But as for your technicians, your camera crew, and so on, you have to transport all of them out there. You have to get the permit to film there. You have to cordon off the roads, like you said. And there's a reason that you just don't do this very often if you can possibly avoid it. Of course, here it's a major plot point that it happens at night. It's in an isolated part of town. Now, another sign that we are in a, a more innocent age the scene in the hospital where Garrett is there questioning Richards and the, and the other officer is there <laughs> questioning Richards where the hell is Richards lawyer you look at this episode from a modern standpoint one of the things that just jumped off the page at me was that he is being questioned by two people who hold sway over his continued employment as an officer of the law, where's his attorney? You know, that's a really good question. And I've seen other episodes uh, in my research of Mr. District Attorney where he's brought in minors and he's questioning these minors in front of their parents, but no attorney is present. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if because Miranda has not been established yet, mm -hmm. then when they bring somebody in for questioning, they're not under arrest per se, they're under questioning, and that in that specific line of the Miranda rights that I think was established sometime in the 1970s, if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you, which is, i.e., the public defender yes. who would be defending the case for Richards against Paul Garrett. But since we're in this era of not only an innocent age of TV, but the era of the 1950s where this is no longer present, you know, that to us stands out, you know, as a red flag. But then that was more par for the course. And I think that's very fascinating that you brought that up. Yeah, of course, I don't know if you really need a public defender to go up against Paul Garrett because scene 52, <laughs> he says, it's hard to believe he's a killer. And it's the exact same thing he said about Olga. Now, what kind of DA is Paul Garrett? If it's so hard to believe that anyone is a killer. So, you know, maybe you don't actually need an attorney. You can just represent yourself going up against Garrett. He's a pushover. Hey, you know what? It's uh, Gene's optimism peeking through. Everyone's uh, innocent until proven guilty. I, I like that read of the material. I love the technology and the very specific things and details that Gene's weaving into this script. And maybe it's because, like, I'm on this binge-watch uh, journey of watching Hawaii Five-0 right now. But, you know, you're seeing terminology used in, you know, in today's shows like GSW, gunshot wound, GSR, gunshot residue, uh, TOD, time of death, COD, cause of death, things like that. But I really did find it fascinating that... If I were a, an audience member back in the 1950s and 1955, seeing something as technical as a paraffin wax test being used to basically determine if Richards or someone else fired a gun on the scene, because there's a scene in scene 48, Delaney says to Richards, Richards, the lab man just ran a test on you. And Richards says, sure, a paraffin test. So what? I was out cold. I didn't use my gun. 
Delaney says the test proves you did. So again, in our investigation of some of these archaic terminologies or technologies that are being used on Wikipedia, the paraffin test states that before the use of the scanning electron microscope, hot paraffin wax was used to take a cast of the suspect's hand. The cast then was sprayed with a reagent giving coloration with nitro compounds from the partially burnt and unburnt propellant particles. This approach, introduced in 1933 by Teodoro Gonzalez of the Mexico City Police Laboratory, is called dermal nitrate or paraffin test and is no longer used in casework because obviously there are more advanced levels of technology to do that. But I always find it fascinating to see something like that in action as it would have been used at the time. Yeah, it's funny because if you showed this to someone who is a police officer now, I wonder if they would watch that scene and just kind of, what is he doing? We haven't used that since the Dark Ages. Uh, There were a couple other episodes where lab technicians were literally pouring plaster into foot impressions in soil to get the boot or shoe impression of whoever was perpetrating the crime in the vicinity. It was it's really fascinating stuff. Also something very specific though, and, and it's it's germane to Richard's defense, is his citation, ticket book. And I wanted to talk about this carbon copy technology that used to be used all the way up until well maybe it's still being used now. But Since Officer Richard's citation book was such a large plot point, I thought I'd explain exactly what Garrett was referring to when he sent the torn-off carbon copy impression to the lab. So a sheet of carbon paper, you know, kind of like that either blue or black paper, is slipped between two or more sheets of paper. And when you write on it, it makes an impression from your pen or pencil or whatever, or even a typewriter. And then that top sheet causes the impression to be captured on the carbon, which puts it you know, puts an impression on the bottom sheet underneath it. So if you write hard enough, you can actually, and I've done this with checkbooks, you've probably done the same thing too, Earl, and and any of you out there who has ever used carbon paper knows this too. You can kind of get yourself a little bit into trouble because you might leave evidence behind of a check that you shouldn't have written for a certain thing that you shouldn't have bought by a certain someone in your life that looks at your checkbook. Just saying that that's a possibility, but that is a carbon copy. So when people like reference carbon copies now, that doesn't exist, right? You know, you're a carbon copy of the original item. Well, that's more of like an affectation, you know, or an idiom than it is an actual practical technological thing anymore. But I thought it was cool that it was a, a piece of evidence that they were hanging on, you know, from the lab to be able to process in order to prove Richard's innocence. I remember my checkbook had uh, carbon paper in it in the 90s. So th- this is uh, not something that is a far distant thing. Well, y- you know, then again, I remember, yeah, the 90s was 30 years ago, and I need to go lay down now because my back hurts. But Your math is correct, sir. Yeah. It's something that has only somewhat recently fallen out of fashion. But I, it's one of those things that you think about it. This has worked into email technology because, you know, when you CC somebody on an email... What does that stand for? Carbon copy. And now Mr. Deed with, I could have been a colonel. I could have been a general. I can't tell you how satisfying it was to find out that Deed had been dishonorably discharged and was BSing about, you know, all of these ranks he possibly could have held. That's actually the best comeuppance in the whole script. 
I could have been somebody, Earl. I could have been a contender. I could have been a general instead of a loser with a one-way citation ticket to Palookaville. I could have been a general nuisance. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm going to probably you know get into it a little bit more in our discussion. But as I relate a lot of what I'm going to be talking about to social media and its relevance to this script, it is interesting that we see Deed in this era basically leaning into the fact that no one can really fact check him. Yeah. No one can really dispute or debunk his claims, especially when you have a description for a character like Artie that says like kind of dumb, but obedient. Okay. I mean, these are the kind of guys that these smart criminals prey on. And we have seen this type of pattern emerge over the course of all of Gene's scripts. You have kind of like the mastermind and the henchman thug and how they can obviously put them into they're like a shield around like the the central the villain character so that whatever happens their pawns will go down before they do so it's easy to manufacture a new identity especially after the war because a lot of people came back maybe they were processed incorrectly how are you going to prove that you know especially if you're a fellow crook because you're not going to walk into the police station and say i'd like to run a background check on my employer what do you do i crime yeah, I try putting that on your tax returns. Well, of course, this day and age, some people probably do. But yeah, you're exactly right. There, there's no way to double check that. If your whole job description is to do bad things and look the other way, you're probably not too concerned with it. Because the flip side of being the human shield around the big boss is that if whoever's above the big boss comes down on anybody, it's probably going to be them before it's you you're probably going to be working for someone completely different in the next exciting episode of Mr. District Attorney if you're in the syndicate. Police brutality. I think that's probably one of the more apt, even if it's brief, titles for an episode that we've done so far uh, for Genealogy. And this is the sixth and final uh, script that we're reviewing. So, police brutality. Did you find what Officer Richards did brutality? Do you find that maybe the title is misleading in a way? But at the same time, though, when we have discussed this on After Dark, that none of these scripts actually were assigned titles, they were titled after the fact. And who knows by whom? I'm not even sure if Ziv Productions actually created these titles for a catalog. For what? Cataloging their inventory of these films or not destroying them at all? That could be, especially since they were cranking out so many shows in tandem for so many stations across the country. You know, you've got to call everything something. And, you know, like we've said, every one of these films exists you know in film form in a library in Madison Wisconsin that unfortunately we don't have access to so we're operating off the scripts but yeah when you're creating that much product you've got to come up with some sort of designator now it could just as easily have been the traffic stop from hell because really if you think about it that's where all of this mm-hmm. starts there are some there's a lot to talk about in this script and yet there's also some stuff that's just it's oversimplified you know i get that the limitations of the show format is that you have 20 odd minutes 
it's all got to be super simple. And in order to guarantee all of that cooperation that you noticed a while back in the opening credits, the opening titles, has these cards about, you know, the cooperation of the L.A. police and fire departments. You have zero chance of telling a story in which the cops are not the good guys because, as Gene would find out in a later production, if you honk off that kind of patron of your work, uh, you lose a lot in the translation. But we have an ending here that's it's a little too pat. If Cadet Johnson Jr. had me rolling my eyes at the end of Police Academy... Richard's showing up, not in cuffs, and getting to be present for his accuser's arrest is its just about on that same level, maybe even a little bit worse. Yeah, I understand, again, we are really boiling the story down to brass tacks, but the optics there are questionable in the extreme. Deed and Clemens have yet to be booked, arraigned, indicted. That process hasn't even started for them. This is just the sting operation and that Garrett is going to let Richards take any part in that sting, it, it presents the appearance that there was never any danger of Richards actually being prosecuted, whether or not the evidence was against him. You see what I'm... Yeah, you know, I think that, unfortunately, I think we're losing a lot in translation when we're just looking at it in script form, because maybe the way it's shot or directed would lean towards us agreeing with something that Garrett said uh, at the end of Act One. He says, I don't prosecute someone who I believe is innocent, or I won't convict somebody I believe is innocent. So Garrett's already you know, placing reasonable doubt in the uh, in the minds of the audience, saying like, look... We know that you didn't do it. We just can't prove that you didn't do it. So, yeah, they also they already had him in the car. You know, they were going to you know bring him to the courthouse. My big problem was towards the end how neatly wrapped up they were able to find and then uh, bust like Deed and Clemens like in their you know their layer of gambling equipment and stolen goods because. For most of the episode, Deed gave him the slip, and he was just able to, yeah. you know, he was cock of the walk, and he was, you know, unashamed. I said, I, I used a big, you know, $10 word, vainglorious, about his efforts and about his appearance. And, you know, he's like, no, they can't touch me. I'm smarter than them. Remember, I was a general back in World War II, but I wasn't. But I was, right? So I just found it a little convenient that all of a sudden— without him changing anything that the police tales were able to pin him down and find his location, radio that into Garrett and then have Garrett come on the scene. I, for me, none of Gene's scripts so far have been that clean or transparent or telegraphed up until like right then convenient. Yes. And uh, did you, did you feel the same way? Oh Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because we went from no crime has been committed to a slam-dunk case for Garrett in 22-some-odd minutes. And the thing that really gets me is that up until then, this is a fairly tense script. I mean, it's almost like Garrett has met his match indeed. Here is someone who is at least thinks that he can outthink 
district attorney. And so I would cite this as kind of an example of the chasing Amy effect, which is 98% of it is really good. And then you get an ending that derails the whole thing. Chasing Amy being the the Kevin Smith movie of Kevin Smith movie what, the nineteen nineties. Yeah, it's it, it's it's been a it's been a hot minute or two, but that is kind of my my personal bellwether of a story that is told so well up until you get to right before the end, and it's like, what the hell was that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, you really should. Just get the ending. Yeah, the ending is a little, yeah, it's a little convoluted. No, it's a lot convoluted. No, it's really convoluted. I'm not even going to sugarcoat that. With Deed, and you mentioned this before, and I I like where you framed him as maybe a counterpart, you know, or a foil to Garrett, because Deed is actually, you know, aside from him manufacturing or fabricating his war career, he was a smart criminal. You know, he was able to anticipate things. He was able to put things into tactical context that made sense to not just him, but obviously to his henchmen. And this is something that I've always seen uh, in, in the way that villains are either written or they're framed. And that it follows the old axiom, every villain is the hero of their own story, right? And I'm wondering, Deed's such a really interesting name. And I know that Gene didn't have any part in Star Trek Enterprise, but Malcolm Deed kind of flip the switch i'm like malcolm reed then i now i have dominic keating as deed in this casting mental casting of the script but i digress but there's that old saying like no deed goes unpunished because deed in his estimation he believes he's the good guy right i mean he's even like embellished if if that's the right turn of phrase embellished his career to impress his henchmen because he is at war with the opposite side of what he does. He's at war with the law. He even says to Clemens earlier on, he said, I'm not playing, Mr. Clemens. Tactics win battles, and this is a battle. The police on one side and us on the other. And he's never said that he's wrong or in the wrong or on the opposite side of right, right? Because as the saying goes, he's the hero. And he's trying to convince his henchmen that he's the hero. It's just unfortunate that it all fell apart at the end because it takes this really wonderful, complex character and it all just kind of diffuses so quickly at the end, especially when Garrett brings up the fact that he manufactured his career and he was just an ensign that hurt himself by being shot by an MP, right? So why do you think he went in that particular direction with Deed? I think what he's pointing out is that a lot of bad guys are, you know, they may be the hero of their own story, as you very appropriately put it. They're legends in their own mind. That's even better. And they get, you get clout in that criminal underworld by getting other people to do your bidding. And what better way to do that than by assigning yourself this fictitious rank? I could have been a general. I could have been a colonel. I on the other hand, could have been a popcorn kernel. But Deed is making sure that, oh, if uh, you know, if we were all still in the military, because I'm sure some of his henchmen are also ex-military. Mm-hmm. Hey, if we were in the military, you would be under me. Step two. Right. And I want to kind of circle back to the military aspect of this script, because, you know, Gene does, you know, touch that, you know, from time to time. But Remember, Deed says that they're waging a war against the police. And 
he has weapons at his disposal, tools that I referenced in my recap as, you know, the weapon of the word. And the way he was able to turn public opinion against the police so quickly is because print and radio at the time in the 1950s, these are the social media weapons of that era. So you have Malcolm Deed here. He is a product of World War II. He's seen firsthand what propaganda manipulation can do to a population, especially, let's say, Nazi Germany and how you know Hitler was able to whip up that entire country into going to war and supporting the Nazi regime. But any faction in that war, any side believed in their nationalism so zealously and, and maybe even blindly that deciding to serve no matter the cost was the only way to react to what was happening to the time. And like Deed, like he tapped into that emotional volatility using the print ad, the mimeograph, the radio spot, because what it did was in the quickest possible way, it incited the mob to riot in a way. Even to the point where they made specific examples of people calling into the police saying that the police did this. The, the woman that called in saying the cop shot my window or they're just piling on or they're jumping in in an uninformed way. That's become kind of like the standard emotional reflex for the mob mentality when outrage right, overshadows the ability to logically approach a situation, to do the homework and to investigate things for yourself. But in this era... Like I said before, when they came to like when it came to manufacturing, you know, a, a fake identity, how are you going to be able to disprove that or debunk it? How are you going to be able to stop the tidal wave of this misinformation? And that's what I found fascinating about this particular episode is that even with like the rudimentary tools of social media of that era, they were still able to do something like this. But that brings up another point. So did you see that the same way I did, Earl? Absolutely. There is a quote that is much older than our social media that we have today and I forget who it should be attributed to and I don't want to stop down the whole show just to look that up but the quote is a lie has circled the globe three times before the truth has laced up its boots oh wow that's great and this goes into the idea of there is an asymmetrical amount of energy that has to be put into debunking a lie versus just telling the truth in the first place because the lie gets circulated and now you've got to go fight that fight on multiple fronts and try to put out all those brush fires that that lie has started by circulating whereas you know you sitting there holding a police press conference or what have you you're in one place possibly shouting into the void and in the meantime misinformation and disinformation which are two very different things by the way are out there doing their job and spreading like wildfire. Yeah, in a very kind of a dark way, Gene's really looking into the future on this one. Well, I'm wondering, you know, if a lot of influence for a script like this is coming from where he's sitting, you know, in the information or investigative division of the Los Angeles Police Department, because he's probably seeing examples like this cross his desk all the time. And I was wondering, like, how Deed was able to turn the public opinion against the police so quickly. So I, I looked into the history of police brutality, and I think Deed was able to do it because realistically, in terms of real time, this paranoia and fear is already there, was already there, still is there. It's not an isolated social construct of any particular decade. You know, it's 
it's been propagated by, again, actions of the police then, social media now, since the beginning of police departments, when they were formed, you know, citizens of pick your country have been suffering underneath the hands of corruption within those departments that are sworn to serve and protect, especially where people of color were concerned or minorities were concerned, or people that couldn't stand up for themselves were concerned. And we look at this at the context of where we are in this script historically, I always thought, based on TV and based on, you know, uh, kind of like the, the signs of those times that, you know, the police would walk down the street with their shiny badge and their sharp cap and their, you know, their disciplinary bully stick and say, you know what, don't worry, son, we're the law, you can trust us. It's kind of like when Wesley said in Star Trek Next Generation, we're Starfleet. We don't lie. It's the bastion of honor and service and uh, the protection of the community. So I had to take a look a little bit deeper. Where did this all start? How did this all start to fall apart for the police? So on Wikipedia, there was an article talking about police brutality specifically, and it states, in the United States, the passage of the Volstead Act, popularly known as the National Prohibition Act in 1919, had a long-term negative impact on policing practices. During Prohibition from 1919 to 1933, the problem of police corruption was only worsened, as crime was growing dramatically in response to the demand for illegal alcohol. Many law enforcement agencies stepped up the use of unlawful practices. Police officers were commonly bribed so that bootlegging and speakeasies could continue, in addition to the flourishing organized crime underworlds of cities such as Chicago, New York City, and Philadelphia. Some police officers became employed by organized crime syndicates, and they helped perform duties such as harassment and intimidation of rivals. By the time of the Hoover administration of 1929 to 1933, the issue had risen to national concern, and a National Committee on Law Observation and Enforcement, popularly known as the Wickersham Commission, was formed to look into the situation. The resulting report on lawlessness in law enforcement, quote-unquote, concluded that the third degree, that is, the use of physical brutality or other forms of cruelty to obtain involuntary confessions or admissions, is widespread. In the years following the report, landmark legal judgments such as Brown v. Mississippi helped cement a legal obligation to respect the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The result was the beginning of a new era in law enforcement in the United States, which aimed to professionalize and reform the industry. It was decided that police should function separately from political wards or leaders, and police precincts were altered no longer to overlap with political wards. Police departments became more bureaucratic with a clear chain of command. New practices were put into place to recruit, train, and reward police officers. By the 1950s, police officers began to win collective bargaining rights and form unions after a long period of not being allowed to form unions, particularly after the police, Boston police strike in 1919. However, these changes were not welcomed by all community members. Police departments adopted tactics that often antagonized people, such as aggressive stop and frisk. Police departments also became increasingly insular and isolated from public life as a result of these changes, according to crime historian Samuel Walker. For these reasons, among other reasons, they were particularly unequipped to handle the cultural and social appeal of the 1960s. So, all that in a nutshell, it seems that there was an underpinning or an undercurrent of police paranoia based on essentially what became a privatized security force after certain bills were or certain laws or certain addendums were passed and enforced. 
Yeah, there were certain phrases that Gene worked into this script that really kind of jumped out at me as being... We can credit him with being forward-thinking. We can discredit ourselves as a society for how little things have changed. I'm not sure which it is. Uh, There's one line that he writes, One killing does not make them all killers. That's kind of one of these fallback phrases that gets deployed because you're fighting that asymmetrical fight against misinformation and disinformation. And the other phrase, you know, to your point about social media, that really jumped out at me as being way ahead of its time, trial by accusation. I think another thing that historically may need to be taken into account, not just the changes in policing as a profession, but also in journalism, because you did not have massive media conglomerates that owned newspapers at the time. Uh, You had probably the beginnings of them, like the New York Times or what have you. There were probably some of them that were sowing the seeds of what we have today. A lot of your newspapers were very local, very grassroots. And these people were not necessarily operating at the Edward R. Murrow level. And so... Deed sends one of his henchmen to slip a note to some newspaper editor, some local newspaper editor, you know, oh, hey, some lady got her window shot out by the cops. It's going to get printed because that's, for them, that, oh, wow, that's a scoop. But without the manpower and foot power to verify, they're printing something that may not dine at the same table as the truth. Norman, I, I think we've both recovered from all the police brutality in this script. Or the traffic stop from hell. I'm still keeping that on the table as an option. As we always do with the Mission Log family of podcasts, we are looking for morals, messages, and meanings. What did you find here? What did the Where did the evidence lead you? You know, Earl, when we first started working on genealogy and how we were going to kind of like poured over the format from our standard mission log to this show so that, you know, they're they're similar in some respects, but obviously because of the subject matter of these early scripts in the 1950s, we weren't sure if the segment from standard mission log, does the episode hold up, does it withstand the test of time, would be applicable for any of the scripts because they're so far removed, 70 years in some cases. But at the same time, though, and you may have noticed this, dear listeners, uh, in our discussion, there is something, you know, very timely at play here. And I have to I have to be honest, this is one of those occasions where I think and this may happen on other future scripts that we uh, that we break down where the story does actually hold up in the the course of the good story that is being told and the relevance that it bears today. So there is, I'm not necessarily turning this into that segment, but I am saying that the moral meaning or message that I found in this script, in this story does withstand the test of time. Now in the previous five episodes of Mr. District Attorney, this being the sixth and final that we're covering for genealogy, it's fair to say that there are definitely productions that, encapsulate a very specific narrative tone that doesn't necessarily transcend across the decades, especially 
from 1955 to now. But this episode, especially where the police are concerned in the court of public opinion, I think is incredibly relevant. Deed wages war against the police by attacking them at their very foundation, their reputation, their perception of abusing the public instead of serving the public. And he does so, as we said earlier in discussion, that he does so with the most effective weapons at his disposal of this time, printed media, radio spots, and good old-fashioned word of mouth. And we see throughout the course of Garrett's investigation how the public turns on the police and Officer Richards so quickly. Even one woman phoned in a falsified statement about police brutality because what Deed did... Wow, that actually works. What Deed did was he was able to incite the mob riot against the police. And he opened that door for public unrest at large to walk through. And in my segment about the history of police brutality, it's not that he turned them so quickly, is that he was able to tap in what was already there. But then I started thinking, how is that any different than how the police are maligned today? Now, sure, let's take a deep breath. There are obviously occasions, instances, and evidence that point towards police brutality that have been perpetrated across the decades. That is without question, without debate. And I'd mentioned so in the Wikipedia article that I read in discussion. But using the social media weapons, quote unquote, and platforms that spread misinformation faster than thought, sure, there are going to be there are going to be hangers on, there are going to be pilers on, there are going to be people that don't vet the information as needed or as required in order to make the most informed decision on how to react to the maligning of certain either officers, departments, or organizations. How many times have any of you on your social media feeds, by the nature of the headlines alone, fall prey to your immediate emotional reaction? instead of investigating deeper, trying to find the truth behind the accusation. I've done it. So many people have done it. It's just who we are. That's human nature. But then again, there is due diligence, right? There is processing the information and trying to find trustworthy sources and trying to investigate the truth for yourself. That's what Garrett's up against in 1954 and 1955. He has the facts. He has the truth on his side, but the court of public opinion is moving too quickly against him. And I'm wondering if this is exactly what Gene was experiencing in real time when he's sitting behind that LAPD desk, you know, in investigations and information. But the bottom line is this story is so relevant because this is a, a case study in human nature and how Deed was able to actually weaponize the tactics of the public court of opinion. And I don't see that any differently today or how it is done differently today. So I don't think I'm too far off base there, Earl. What do you think? I think you're right on the money. I, it's kind of depressing to think how little things have changed. On the flip side, I, I, there was another thing that I really couldn't shake here that I thought sent a... Perhaps even more depressing message. We have characters within the fictional police department that Mr. District Attorney, you know, pursues so many of his cases with, cutting all kinds of procedural corners to help Richards out. I suppose from one angle, that's inspiring. From another angle, 
it's disturbing, especially if the optics of that get out into the public sphere where their fictional police department is already fighting arguably a losing battle against disinformation. It could be that that part of this episode had too much potential complexity and ambiguity for the show that it's in. I would love to see this expanded to an hour Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and unshackled from the confines of Mr. District Attorney, which we, you know, we're about to toss those shackles away anyway, because this is Gene's last script for this show. It, it almost needs to be in a different show, and I think, maybe, maybe that's an indication that Gene is ready to graduate to bigger and better things as a writer. Now, that brings me around to one quick question for you before we go, and, you know, this is also for the audience to discuss. We are on Gene's sixth and final Mr. District Attorney script. What is your take on the show and on his work for the show? Have you noticed, like, a steady uptick in the quality of his work? Has he helped the show within its format? Has he helped to improve the show from what it was before he started writing scripts for it. What's your take? Well, I mean, we definitely see an evolution of his quality, that's for sure. And I think that looking at six scripts, I've made, um, on several occasions in previous genealogies, I've made the case that because he's working in such a condensed format, you know, and he's not working over the course of, say, you know, 22, 26 scripts, that he may or may not have consciously or subconsciously created a soft serialization of the characters and events that are going on, you know, in his story. You can make a very easy case that the syndicate is the big bad of his entire narrative over these six scripts. And then that people and players and obviously criminals are, they're, they're trying to thwart the district attorney, you know, at every angle. I, I'm glad that you brought up this whole thing with Garrett cutting corners in order to facilitate Richard's trial defense and and clearing him of of any crime or wrongdoing because that's exactly probably what the public is afraid of, right? You have these people in the highest echelons of organizations that are supposed to serve and protect and prosecute under the strictest, blindest interpretation of the law. But on TV... When you, little Timmy or little Johnny, are watching district attorneys say, you know what, we're going to forego due process because I believe as the hero that this person who is perceived in the story as being the criminal is innocent. Therefore, if you in real life become higher in the echelons of law enforcement, you too can circumvent due process because that is what being Mr. District Attorney is all about. Now, I might be taking a huge leap of logic there, but that is what, as you say, the optics look like from that standpoint, furthering the discontent in the public opinion towards the police at the time. Because you're like, well, if it's happening in fiction, it certainly could happen in in reality. So I'm thinking that over the course of going back to your original question over the course of these six scripts you're seeing a very distinct maturing process in gene's work because i think he's actually pushing the envelope of trying to push more controversial and memorable 
morals, meanings, and messages into the story, this perhaps being one of them, because it was the first one for me that really did resonate so immediately, especially where we try and bridge the gap between the decades and say, hey, you know what? This is a timeless story based on the events then and how they relate to the events now. So I think that for Gene, there's not really anywhere else he can go, I think, in uh, this particular show. So I guess we're on to the next show. How about you? How did you feel about these scripts? We're starting at the beginning. And at the outset, let's just say that I, my strategy was managing expectations. But by the time we get to this one, and to some extent the previous one, I think this was also something that I brought up in Patrol Boat, it feels like this show is too restrictive for him. He needs to move on to something else is something that will let him tell, you know, more complex stories, perhaps more ambiguous stories. I try not to put on the writer's hat for this show because this is not a show about a particular TV series. This is a show about the writer. And I'm not here to outright the writer that we're talking about. That's not what this podcast is about. But I keep thinking about what if this was an hour show and your complication at the end of Act 4 is the press getting hold of the fact that they're kind of shielding Richards from the full force and fury of the law that is up against him as a suspect. That would be a huge, that would be a fantastic complication to solve in Act 5. And the fact that, you know, you can kind of, I think that's kind of implicit here. It's like, there's not enough time for that much complication in this story. And yet all the pieces are being put on the table. I, I think Gene was almost writing too much story for this show. And so, yeah, he's ready to move on. And I will tell you that the next thing we covered, there's a lot to talk about with that one. Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Sean Darr as Officer Richards, Glenn Rigberg as Captain Delaney, and John Krikorian as District Attorney Paul Garrett. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, The Transporter. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. This concludes our broadcast day. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.